Lucifer Podcast is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. For all things comics, movies, media, music, and more, check out the Cage Club Network. That's cageclub.me. Welcome back to all new, all different Uncanny X's for Podcasts, where we examine the Uncanny X-Men comic book franchise as it begins its multi-title 80s expansion. I'm your host, Jonah. I'm Dylan. And I'm Nico, and we hope you survive the experience, because man, this is like, fuck. You know, I feel like all of the issues have had like a bunch of death lately, it's been really exciting. Today we're going to be taking a look at Uncanny X-Men 169 through 171 by Chris Claremont and Paul Smith, as well as Marvel Team-Up 135 by Bill Mantlo and Ron Friends and Mike Esposito which I can only explain or describe as a marvelous misunderstanding of who Kitty Pride is in a matter of 24 pages. Oh my god. What what a, what, a, what an issue. Okay, this episode has taken so fucking long, guys. I'm gonna green room all over everybody. This episode has taken so fucking long to record. We have rescheduled this episode like seven times at this point, and, you know, sometimes it's for dumb reasons, like, you know, I forget how to unlock my front door and I'm locked outside the house till my husband comes home and rescues me. And other times, it's because we realized, oh shit, Angel has to kind of almost fuck Dazzler. Almost. Before he can have this happen. And I had had this Marvel team up in the last episode read and Jonah had to be like, why are we reading about the Morlocks before we've met them? And I was like, fuck! (laughs) So, I am just so goddamn happy to not keep refreshing myself on these fucking issues that I can't wait to talk about them. But it's just, guys, why do we spend so much time talking about Angel? For a guy that we joke is always mistreated as kind of like the unwanted bastard X-Man, I find that he is a central figure more often than he's not. Whether they're fitting him with his own team, like in the Champions or shortly from here in the Defenders, or anchoring a title with him, he was in a good nine issues of Dazzler within a year. There's a lot of traction on this character. Jonah, we've made jokes about how worthless Angel is and how annoying Warren Worthington is and how he's always represented by money and wings, but there has to be something to this character that people keep coming back to him. Yeah, for his money. (laughs) (laughs) No, but like, because like, I'm not sure what's happening. Like, I think what's happening, so Xavier is fin-doming him, right? Like, that is the situation? Uh, I would assume so. He's like, you're a freak. You've got those dumb wings. Now buy me a new mansion. And Angel's like, you're not the boss of me. My dad's dead. You're right. My dad's dead. I'll go buy you a mansion. And like, kind of goes off and like, you know, just posts pictures of his feet in socks on Twitter and says, hey, and I'll DM you the real thing. So I feel like that's what Xavier's doing now that he can walk. He's just sending feed pics all over Twitter. Oh my God. Okay. So what do you see in Angel? 
Okay, my only critique of your angel impression is that he was not enthusiastic enough about his parents dying. That is a really fascinating point. But what do you think it is about Angel that has made the character resonate? He is almost... You know, I feel like Angel is a, is an X-Man trope at this point. There is always the carefree, sort of disconnected one from the team. That's an element of the X-Men's dynamic that's like, kind of like that I'm the financial one and I'm kind of off in my own world. But yeah, I don't know. I feel like Monet has all the money in Gen X and Birdo has all the money in New Mutants. Julian has all the money in the Hellions. I feel like maybe at this point in time in Marvel Comics, since they've written Angel that this way of him just being the pretty boy, rich boy type of thing, I think they may have been a little confused on how to write him as an X-Man since the X-Men are just always talking about being outsiders and whatnot. So I think the writers may have just like kind of put themselves in a corner on how to write him as an X-Man. Oh, wow. The way I see Angel is that he's, like, uh, to quote Sarah Silverman, the comfortable uh, straight white man that you go back to because you don't want to try something new. I feel like Angel just represents the good-looking, rich, white, cis male that you can rely on to do things for you. And his mutation is beautiful. It's not like anybody else's, where he has these gorgeous angel wings, but he's able to fold them up like like origami or some shit. And <laughs> you're able to rely on him as the character that everyone can relate to. If you take a look at the team right now, it's currently missing Wolverine and Cyclops from the actual X-Men. And you don't really have the influence of the strong straight white male that you have with only Kurt and Colossus. I'm going to interact with every beautiful thing you just said in a moment, but first, a message from our sponsors in a world where everybody does their napkin origami using cloth. One man dares to rise above the rest and soar to success. He is Warren Worthington, napkin origami master. Using his own wings to craft delicate works of art, he sets the table and sets the bar. This is all I could think the entire time you were talking. So, I can't breathe. I think something like- I think something we've talked about extensively is that X-Men represents the death of the straight white narrator for as much as it is the perpetrator of said crime. Logan represents a straight white male narrator, but I feel like something Logan has that sets him really, really far apart is like, he's kind of got that cowboy, I could maybe be a ruthless outlaw thing, but he does have a code. His code mostly seems to be only sleep with other men's wives and constantly fly into a rage at any except the women you're trying to bang and your drinking buddies. Nope, sometimes they're subject to it too. Like, it, he's not a stand-up guy. He's really not. And in that regard, he's not a Captain America. He's not even really a Tony Stark. Sure, Tony Stark's flawed, but, like, Tony Stark's not... Like, like Wolverine's kind of a shithead, right? Like, there's times Wolverine just sucks at this point in the X-Men. And with that in mind, I feel like Angel really does kind of represent the last vestiges of the pretty X-Men. We're about to move into an era 
of X-Men where everything is a little bit more, I guess, grotesque in a lot of ways. And I think Mask is a really terrific representation of that. The sort of uncomfortable blood play that Callisto represents. Because look, I'm going to own the fact that we made a bunch of weird sexual jokes. But at the core of it, we are talking about a pseudo-sexual torture scenario where two women who both have been coded male at different points in their story battle to the death for the honor of the model-esque beauty queen. Like, this really is a... If we switch the genders, we would immediately see Angel as a sexual victim. We would see him as, if that was a woman, tied up there with delicate, beautiful wings and those gentle blonde locks, we would absolutely call shenanigans. And we're not even not calling shenanigans. Nobody's saying this doesn't have a sexual quality to it. But there is a level of sexuality to this that I can't fucking believe came out in the early 1980s at Marvel. Whether it's the frivolity of Angel's overt sexuality, you know, he talks in Dazzler about how he's realized that Candy Southern can't be the only woman that he basically, like, docks his wings in, and here, he's immediately shacking it with her, and, I don't know, maybe I'm watching a few too many, like, dark things lately, but, like, part of me almost reads it like, she feels a little bit like, oh, Jesus Christ, what is he up to now? And there's just so much fucking... There is a really HBO-level vibe that Claremont was trying to push and get away with well before comics knew that they could go that far in the mainstream. This is, what, five years before everything realized that it just had to ape Watchmen to be successful? I recently read this thing where Alan Moore said that he wished that what people took from Watchmen was that you could take these characters and do dynamic new things with them, not please do my dynamic new thing for 50 years. And for what it's worth, I think this was really progressive in a lot of ways. I completely agree with you, and I think there's no other better way to show progressiveness through Storm. You know, I don't know, especially during this time, many other books that have a very strong female black lead, and Storm I think completely breaks the mold for what it means to be a powerful woman. I think Callisto herself also breaks a lot of molds. You know, she's the leader of this misfits of misfits it's as you say she's very heavily coded male i think there's a way to do that well and i think chris encoding her more masculine did it well i'm gonna say that i think he did well with her you know i feel like he's barely got any misses in this entire this three-parter for me really is a spectacular example of what he was able to accomplish and to finish focusing on the first part for a moment whether it's angel tied up to what looks to me to be a mattress. Like, the Morlock tunnels, I have some issues with the Morlocks being, with Callisto being like, we take our name from the H.G. Wells novels! Like, I'm, oh my god. Oh, I guess <laughs> Hickman had a reason to quote Sun Tzu in the beginning of House of X, but I think the ultimate conveyance of darkness and sort of, I don't know what else to call it, downstairs trauma <laughs> of this story is really incredible because we spent so much time in space and space had a certain vastness. The contrast here is a specific tightness and there's something about that interplay of the openness of space and the introduction of a number of new mutants in the form of the new mutants who are for all intents and purposes all pretty good looking and all very able to pass as human and now here we get the Morlocks and there are another group of new mutants and they are horrifying and I feel like Claremont is trying to play against all of the ideas he set up and I wonder if that's part of how his storytelling works. He 
love this idea of setting up the dominoes to knock them back down, setting up the dominoes to knock them back down, and I feel like for as much as I could call this a big setup issue, issue 169 really did deliver in a lot of ways, whether it's the weird torture scenes with Angel, or it's the, I don't know what to call it, let's go with Amanda Sefton shows up and is like, okay, so that, okay. Instantly in a hot tub with her brother. Yeah, there's that, like, three pages that I'm like, this is about totally unrelated things, right? When Amanda Sefton shows up, and there's that whole Emma Frost sequence a page earlier. Now, the Emma Frost sequence is ultimately going to pay off in a big way, and there was hints of it later on this arc. But Claremont is trying to tell so many stories that he's having trouble even keeping it to two books. I just don't even know what to say. It's unreal to me that we are just 30 issues away from the X-Men getting another title, and then another 30 issues away from the X-Men getting yet another title. So we're really just two years from a third book and four years from a fourth book, and then from there it's just all hell breaks loose. I think Chris is doing a decent job of sowing seeds, but it comes at a price where I feel like he's breaking up the story a little too much. I think maybe there's a time and a place. And while I do enjoy like seeding what's happening, sometimes you can just get away with not seeding anything and still have it be a surprise and still have it pay off. But that's just not how he rolls. You know, Claremont really had the equivalent of the Arrowverse in comics. He had three and four titles at a time that he single-handedly controlled, and then a number of titles that what he said sort of went on. And I feel like we made some, for lack of a kinder term, accusations that it was possible that Claremont got Rogue back, like he kind of called, I want her back, and that's what happened. And I feel like the Rogue, Mystique, and Destiny scenes in 170, they feel like they, I guess, could be on the heels of the Dazzler story, but this does not feel like the same three characters. What did you guys think about this jarring transition for Rogue? What I thought it was were Rogue's lesbian moms upset that she ran away. (laughs) I mean, I think you're trying to be funny, but I don't know that the unfunny version of it is any... I know this is probably going to pay off with the mystique having a premonition about Jean Grey killing her, whatever that may be, but I guess I I actually really like this small downtime of Mystique and Destiny kind of, you know, living domestic partners because of their best friends. <laughs> it it seemed a little off, mainly just because we don't typically see the villains in a downtime like this. So it was kind of odd, and I don't really know. It was just weird to see them, because we usually see the X-Men in off moments, not the villains that we're supposed to hate. So I think that's why it kind of seemed off. One of the things that's so important to Claremont is the duality of the relationship everybody has with Mystique. It would seem like everybody has a complicated relationship with Mystique at one point or another. Everybody's been friends or family with her at some point in the past. And Mystique not being evil, while not necessarily one of Claremont's most go-to moves, is something you're going to see come up from time to time. Yes, she is evil. And yes, we're supposed to hate her. But he needs us to care about her. And I think that's why he takes moments like that to humanize her. I'm not trying to be like that guy, but does it seem like every other fucking issue Kitty Pride is in the hospital? <laughs> 
characters in comic books can kind of be set into certain patterns and sometimes it feels like Chris likes to make Kitty sick way too much. Since they don't have Jean and they kind of want Storm to be this strong leader with Cyclops being gone, I feel like they're kind of like, well, who's the only other female on the team that we can make be a damsel in distress here and there and we can't do that to Storm because that will affect her character too much. So let's use the teen girl. I really see that. That's a great point. Now, it wouldn't be the X-Men if there wasn't a love story that nobody quite understood at all. And I'm going to be real... I don't know what to make of these Madeline pages because it's such a complicated story to talk about, right? I don't want to spoil anything. So, Dylan, for all intents and purposes, and oh, I want (laughs) to congratulate Dylan and welcome him to the club. In our group chat with all of the different hosts, we have a pretty awesome group chat. In our group chat, Dylan was like, hey, this is my first real X-Men issue. And we were like, oh, someone's not an X-baby anymore. And he was like, don't make fun of me, guys. It was was a lot of fun. So, congratulations to... First real X-Men issue because, and this is how you know it's a real X-Men issue, because there's a Marvel team up and you wish it would die. So that's how you know it's an uncanny X-Men issue. Yay. So Dylan, I don't believe Jonah knows much of what's going to happen with Madeline and I want to keep it that way. Okay. But it is unfucking real to me that at this point in canon, none of that is the plan yet. Yeah. How? These scenes between Madeline and Scott, like we were saying earlier with Claremont and his planting seeds here and there for things that are going to come up later or maybe even decades later. It's kind of hard to read these Cyclops and Madeline scenes because it seems like he didn't really know what he was doing with either one of them. And that's why it's so hard and weird to read those scenes. And I feel like he didn't know what he was doing with either one of them is a really accurate portrayal of what feels like meandering. I understand that there's meant to be kind of like, ooh, what's going on? Is she genius? Now, Jonah, like we keep saying, we keep talking about you like you're not here, but Jonah, for your sake, what do you feel is going on reading these three issues and this Gene, Madeline, Scott, Phoenix, the fuckery kind of thing? The way I viewed it was it's a setup for bringing Gene back in a way, but like, I don't know how, I don't know exactly why, I don't know if he was even given permission to bring Gene back. But that would be my best guess, is it's forming a setup for that between the premonition that Mystique has and Madeline Pryor falling in love with Scott, even though they barely know each other and they do these weird dances, and yet he's still the major sad boy. It's, I don't know, it's too much, and I don't, give him a different strong woman or something, I don't know. I'm over it. I'm I'm pretty over it too, to be completely honest. I never really understood the attraction to Madeline, and I can honestly tell you why. It comes down to the fact that she looks too much like Jean for me. If I found out that someone I was banging, their ex looked exactly like me, and there's all of these weird coincidences with the dates lining up, like, it's just a little too much for me, and on the subject of the Mystique element, Mystique, as far as I know, never met Jean Grey, and here's why I'm gonna say that, because Mystique's first appearance is after Jean dies. So, (laughs) there's that? So, I'm not crazy about that. I just feel like the build-up to what I know this pays off with. It pays off in X-Men 175. I know that's coming, but I feel like it's not the story I'm looking for. That said, what does pay off in a way that I love is Storm versus Callisto is one of my 
all-time favorite sequences in comic book history. It is the best comic book scene in history. It is genuinely, truly one of the most powerful things, and it comes down to the way Paul Smith expresses faces, the way Storm's face lacks so many details throughout this story, and not just because Mask is the most disgusting motherfucking mutant on the planet, but because he tries to express Storm with this otherworldly, almost ethereal, goddessy, spirity face, and I guess I had never before, even in Cockrum's experiment with Rogue Storm, and we see her crackling and, you know, power, I don't know that I ever found her quite as terrifying as I find her standing as she walks past a fallen Callisto. It is just exemplary storytelling. Dylan, I couldn't be happier that your first full Uncanny episode really is such an important one for your all-time favorite fictional character, I believe, and I would love to know how it felt reading this the first time, rereading it, and love to know. Amazing is how I could describe every time that I read it. I have actually read this issue a billion times, I feel like, because it is, like, one of the most quintessential important moments for Storm, because this is really kind of one of their first-ish missions since Cyclops left. And I think it is kind of important that even though it's just Storm, Nightcrawler, and Colossus, that even when Storm is, like, completely tired and whatnot, she's still not going to let Kurt or Colossus take charge in something that she should do. And just the fact that she's going to have to fight a very important battle without her powers, because, I mean, out of the three of them, she is the Omega with them. So the fact that she has to prove herself without using her mutant abilities, it's just amazing. And like you said, the part with her walking over the basically lifeless Callisto, it's chilling and very awe-like. And I can't think of any better person to respond to that take on the story than Jonah. One of the things that I feel sets this story apart is Nightcrawler's reaction to Storm is genuinely chilling. When he says she would have died rather than kill another, yet in the duel, Aurora stabbed Callisto through the heart only the fact that one of Callisto's fellow Morlocks was a healer enabled her to survive. Aurora was changing before my eyes, but what truly terrifies me is she doesn't seem to mind. Jonah, where do you stand on this change, this dynamic shift in the the ethereal voice of the X-Men? I think this is the culmination we've been seeing for Storm, whether or not that was Chris's full intention. I believe he. this was a plan from a certain point, but I don't know if this was the plan from the very beginning. I think this is Storm realizing that she can no longer live in her bubble, in that not killing, and I think this was the turning point where Storm realized she has to make a choice, and that choice is, I can go be carefree and not do good, or I have to realize there's got to be a little bit of blood on my hands if I'm going to make the difference that I want to make. I love you saying blood on my hands. And Storm on the first page of 171 is like the hottest motherfucking thing I've ever seen in my life, right? Like, we can all agree that that's like the hottest shit you've ever seen. Yeah, that first page is one of the best images of Storm. And just the fact that they, in between 170 and 171, had her put on Callisto's vest. That's, I don't know, it's just awesome. Oh, 100%. I feel like we could describe 171 as the reign of bad girls in a 
lot of ways, whether it's Storm's triumph over Callisto, or it's Rogue's entrance, Ileana's out-of-control flash, or the potential that Madeline Pryor might in fact possess the Phoenix Force. Maybe even some of Storm's less attractive, I'm gonna break things moments, or Carol blasting off into space. This issue is just like, seriously, big badass woman doing big badass things without any regard for the gender politics of it all. This is the kind of story that when I tell people, no, no, Uncanny X-Men was thousands of years before its time, this is what I'm talking about. I don't think that any of this reads by gender. In fact, what's so fucking funny to me is the moment that Colossus transforms and Rogue throws herself on the floor and she, you know, dives out of the way and I don't think that that's a fight Colossus could win. I truly believe Rogue's just not killing him and that that is not a fight that he could win. She's letting him have this in the name of seeking help. And I feel like that is a massive turning point in her character. And already she's one of my favorite X-Men of all time. Like seriously, this one issue, I am such a diehard Rogue fanboy. And I just think she's such a great character. She possesses so much dimension and she has such complexity of voice. And this is such an amazing example of why I love this so much. And Jonah, what was it like to finally have Rogue, who is one of the most identifiable X-Men, finally be in the pages of the comic on the right side of the law? I will say this. I'm very, 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 very excited to get to know Rogue, to see where her start began, because I know Rogue is probably, if not the most popular X-Women. That being said, I, I think this made a compelling story for what Chris wrote. But the more optimist side of me wished it was a more pleasant story overall. This is a very heavy issue, and I think it deals with a lot of topics. And there's a big theme throughout this entire issue about facing your, for lack of a better phrase, abuser. Not that Rogue really abused Carol, but it was still the same effects of it. And you have Ileana facing what happened with Belasco. It was a lot. It was really, really heavy, and, you know, maybe they could have put a little whipped cream on top to make it sweeter and a little lighter. I can't wait to jump into that Eliana moment, because this issue represents so much of my X-Men fandom coming into focus again. I feel like I said that every 25 issues or something, but Dylan, what are your feelings on Rogue? She is obviously one of my diehard favorites, and she makes not having Jean for quite a while a lot easier for me. What are your thoughts on Rogue? My thoughts on Rogue are, I actually like early decades Rogue. Like, I'm happy also, not only just because I'm joining, finally joining the main X-Men episodes of this with Storm taking over the X-Men for a while, but I'm happy that I'm joining now because this is when Rogue basically joins the team. And I like Rogue in early days because she is so confused. Like, she first appeared as a member of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, but you could clearly tell that that's not where she needed to be, and I feel like early issues of her, there was hints here and there that she was most likely not going to be staying with them, and that she was destined to have a bigger story. So, I really like early Rogue, because she's, like, in the middle of good and evil, and everybody who is an X-Men fan 
or even comic book hero fan always wonders if you had superpowers, would you be good or evil? And so far with most of the X-Men issues up to now, there's always just been a clear sign of good and evil mutants. And I feel like Rogue is there in the middle for people to relate to. I love that. That's a great read. Now I'm dying to know. Okay, Ileana, let's talk about it. She's nuts. (laughs) Yeah, but she's got a cool sword. Doesn't she though? And a great necklace. What's cooler than crazy young teenager with a sword and magic? Oh, there's nothing cooler than a crazy young teenager with a sword and magic, especially when her name is Magic. And her well, not yet. She's still Ileana. That's spoiler. <laughs> spoiler, spoiler. <laughs> but she is coming into her own. That's a thing for sure. And I love that this is like the point at which she's going to finally get fucking weird. And everyone's been calling her weird forever. And now like, guys, you have no idea what you are in for. Get ready for the weirdest dinner table you've ever seen. So I do have to bring up another woman who has a rather explosive moment in this book. Everybody say goodbye to binary for a while. It's really sad. I like I like the binary Carol. I do too, but she's not going to have any part of these X-Men for a little while. These are not her X-Men anymore. Hashtag not my X-Men. Yeah, they, if they've got room for Rogue, they don't have room for her. It's a betrayal. She feels as though Rogue destroyed her life and the X-Men are now taking in the woman that took everything from her. It's a terrifying notion and it's gut-wrenching, but these people who gave her a home and a life and gave her, in many ways, access to power beyond what she ever knew before are now taking that family from her and she yeah it's just unbelievable that carol makes this dramatic exit from the x-men i can't blame her but it's certainly a change it is and i think this confrontation was going to happen either way and i guess my only problem with it is i wish it was saved for like an issue or two you know rogue was just introduced and she doesn't know what she wants to do and she's seemingly willing to, for lack of a better phrase, repent and learn what the extents of her powers are and what do they mean. And I think having that really violent confrontation with Carol so sudden after she appears, it almost makes me feel like it was kind of like a soiled introduction. I really wish it was saved for one or two issues where, you know, as a reader, I get to know Rogue and that confrontation becomes much more painful for me for both sides. Like when Jonah said earlier, I feel like this issue was so heavy with so many things happening that maybe, like he just said, maybe they should have let this entire issue be about the X-Men dealing with the fact of what Storm just did with the Morlocks and then the repercussions of Ileana and her weird attack on Kitty and then maybe have a whole next issue be all about Rogue and Binary. I wasn't expecting to see Caliban after 21 issues. Sure. You know, Caliban was the first Morlock that we saw, and in many ways, he is one of the most pivotal. He's, I don't think, anybody's favorite X-Man or X-Character, but he spends time on both sides of the good guy, bad guy divide, and he goes through transformation after transformation and iteration after iteration, and it's gonna be quite a ride. It's a character that I don't think ever penetrated the cultural vernacular the way a lot of his similar era characters did. I think he's probably... 
I don't know, probably one of the worst known Morlocks of the the big ones. Although, like, who the fuck knows what a Morlock is? I guess people might know Marrow, or perhaps they know Callisto, but I don't think people are like, ah, yeah, beautiful dreamer! Mask! I don't think people are just, like, (laughs) lining up to get that one-of-a-kind Annalee action figure. Nobody is just freaking out for it, you know? So You say that, but the next Marvel loot box is going to contain all Morlock stuff. Please, if those things ever come out. So... Okay, 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 okay. So, this is a thing that's happening. Marvel has given me, fine, us, a series headlined by Emma Frost and Kitty, now Kate, Pride, as pirates. I was thinking about recommending this even before it came out, because Dear Sweet God, this is not exactly my brand. But then Nico said, hey, do the thing. So this is me, doing the thing. I'm Matthew, and today I come bearing the piratey goodness that is Marauders 2019 number one. White pirate queen Emma Frost. Weird drama with Kitty not being able to pass through the only thing in the history of time she hasn't been able to pass through. Jokes about Bobby Drake wanting to meet tops, pirates, and super brutal violence via phasing a gun into some mook's leg. Sign me the fuck up. Okay, alright, fine. I guess I could be all chill and rational and curb my expectations. I have no idea what's going to happen with this series. I don't even know if it'll survive in this crazy, cutthroat, cancelled after three only mildly solicited issues world that we live in. But I am all aboard the SS Pride for as long as possible, and this series looks like it's getting at least a fair bit of publicity, so there's hope. Let's get into it. Emma Frost, now sitting on the Mutant Homeland's Quiet Council, and running the Hellfire Corporation is courting Kitty slash Kate to be her... I'm not sure. Primary agent, I guess? Ship captain, specifically. That or Emma's appointing her as the Red King slash Red Queen, which is hinted at but could be a, heh, red herring, I suppose. Kate considers and later accepts the position with a brand new big-ass boat to work with and recruits her team of Iceman, Storm, the original flavor Pyro back from the dead, and best dragon ever, Lockheed. Also, Bishop is joining the cast at some point in the near future. From there, they go and kick some Russian butt because Russia is and remains an easy fill-in for oppressive governments. After their victory, Kate sends a message to the world saying that the Marauders are coming to save mutants and help them get to Krakoa. Now, given that this is the first time I'm recommending a current series, and a first issue with that, I've got some speculation to throw around. Kitty can't pass through the Krakoan... However the bloody hell you refer to mutant homeland citizens nows, Gates, for reasons that we don't yet know. There are some people guessing that it's because she isn't a mutant. You can reference the Hunt for Wolverine titles for where that speculation begins, but I hope and pray that's not the case. For whatever my speculation is worth, I honestly believe that Kate's inability to pass through the gates is Emma's doing. My guess is that Emma, or possibly some other person on Krakoa, I literally cannot say that word, I don't know why, is hopeful about Krakoa's, damn it, future, but also realistic. As such, I think she wants someone on the outside, someone she knows she can trust and rely on in case things go south, and her pride. Now to what end? No idea, but come on. Xavier is shady as hell on a good day, let alone when he's going around with a fishbowl on his head at all times. Also, why is Pyro on the team? Besides for the inevitable fire and ice puns? More importantly, why is it original Pyro rather than the new one? Unless someone was fearful of the inevitable puns about flaming that I'm deeply disappointed about not getting to make now. Anyway, it's a brave new world for mutants with Captain Kate on the high seas. Let's hope we get some awesome pirate outfits for everyone, especially if they're as excellent as Emma's pantsuit, because that shit is sexy as hell and I cannot wait to cosplay it. As always, you can find me at UpdateLittleHomo on Instagram, where I'll be living my best pirate life from here on out. Yo-ho, yo-ho, the mutant life for me. I'm not sorry about that joke.
as always, it has been a bullseye banana bonanza blast. What? And I have had such a good time talking about Uncanny X-Men with the two of you. And whether you guys are listening to us in our 80s mutant mania feed right here, the miracle of Marvel Man over with Kevo, or the unbelievable... What? We didn't talk about the Marvel team up. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck. All right. Okay. Um... Oh, fuck. You know what? That's my opinion on the Marvel team-up, guys! I'm gonna leave all of that in! So, the Marvel team-up was so bad, Kitty Pride is babysitting these human kids, and I'm like, what the fuck human kids do they know? It was so stupid. It was really bad. Bill Mantlo, I really respect you as an author. I feel bad that I feel like the cross-section of your work that I've had to read for this show has been not my favorite, but I didn't like it. It was bad. It felt like seven pages about Spider-Man, and then it felt like seven pages about Kitty Pride. and until they actually had a scene together, I didn't think it was the same book. That's my thoughts on this issue. My whole thoughts boil down to Kitty's babysitting because Charles wants her to do teenage things, which one, Charles would never. Two, why that of all things? Why was she not hanging out with the new mutants to do teenage things? Because they go out and have fun and do, you know, the stereotypical things. Was babysitting the only thing he could think of for her to do? Granted, I know she hates them, but like Charles would force her to hang out with them because she would have to. Why babysitting? This was so... And these two fucking kids! These two fucking dumb kids! These two I fucking kids. kids! When one of them goes missing, I don't fucking care. I don't care if we ever see that kid again. Kitty, you're a terrible baby sitter you went to sleep these horrible monsters got out and now they're both gonna die and you need to think about that dylan you're from chicago what do you think (laughs) um well even though i'm from the same state as kitty we don't babysit kids like that we usually just give them some benadryl and then we see them again the next morning that's a real yeah you know whenever i try and babysit (laughs) i would always go right for robo tripping on that note On that note, <laughs> so whether you guys check us out on 80s Mutant Mania, The Miracle of Marvel Man, or our absolute favorite thing to do every week, breaking down the previous week's X-Men issues in our amazing We Are Krakoa feed, we are bringing you all of the X-Men you can handle twice a week, every week. Please make sure to hit subscribe to our feed, whether you listen to us on Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes. We'd also love to hear from you guys, so hit us up at x at cageclub.me. We We cannot wait to hear from you. We've been hearing from you guys on Twitter, and that's been a lot of fun. So let us know what you guys think. Let us know what features you want to hear, and if there's something that we're not covering that we should be covering, let us know, and we'll make sure to get that in. And until then, Dylan, where can everybody find you online? I think you might have a a Facebook group that you named after that series that came out over the summer. Oh my goodness. Hush. Everybody can find me on Facebook at my Facebook group that was titled House of X three years before House of X was made. And you can also find me on Instagram at Warpath underscore Dylan, Warpath underscore D-Y-L-A-N. Jonah, where can everyone find you? Not babysitting two kids who get taken by the underground basic equivalent of mole people. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Jonah Rubino and at Jonah.Rubino. Nico, where can everybody find you? You guys can find me all over this amazing network on shows like HTML or doing theme work for shows like Too Fast, Too Forever. I absolutely love when Joey lets me spread my creativity all over this network. He's the best. Big shout out to Joey. You guys can find me making super inclusive superhero comics over at KidRiotComics.com. And you can find me usually flexing with my shirt off over at Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And until you guys return to hear more of us covering the amazingness that happens at Gray Malkin Lane, we will see you. Bye. See ya.